Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, a former ESPN award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Today, we're welcoming on Jason Schreier. Jason is a reporter at Bloomberg covering the games industry and the author of two books, most recently Press Reset, a New York Times bestseller that covers the inside of the games development industry. Before Bloomberg, Jason worked at Kotaku, the gaming culture website, and Wired, the tech magazine. He is one of gaming journalism's most seasoned veterans. Whether it's labor rights issues, game delays, or CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies telling their employees to remain apolitical ahead of a monumental Supreme Court decision about abortion, oh, and their desire to adopt a dog, the likelihood that Jason broke that story is very high. So who watches The Watchmen? Well, in this case, we're flipping the script on Jason, asking him about the power he holds as the Beat's top reporter. Jason Schreier, welcome to Visionaries. This was arranged prior to last week's sort of EA conundrum, but it's certainly something I want to talk about as we go through this episode. For those unfamiliar with Jason, he works at Bloomberg and covers the games industry, previously worked at Kotaku. And so, Jason, why don't we start there? How did you get started in this space as a journalist and and find yourself at Kotaku eventually? So, first of all, I thought you were going to intro this by being like, we have the most successful and powerful people, and also Jason Trier is here. No, should have been the fitting, you, you the are fitting. successful, Jason. Let, let, <laughs> like You're successful and powerful. You work at the biggest business publication in, in the world and write about this industry from a pretty high perch. So It is. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me, Jacob. So, uh, yeah, I've I was interested in journalism and writing from a very young age. Um, it's funny. I think a lot of people get into the games media space because they're interested in video games. They love video games and they want to work in the games industry. But I approached it from the angle of, well, I want to be a journalist. And so this Mm -hmm. space happens to be interesting and I want to cover it. So brief version of my origin story on my high school paper, wound up becoming editor in chief of my high school paper, did some stuff at my college, NYU, did some newspaper stuff. And then after school, started freelancing, wound up getting kind of a permalance job for Wired, which was my big break in Spent a couple of years there and then went on to Kotaku for a long time. I was there for eight plus years and now I'm at Bloomberg. And the way I stumbled into this is because like after uh, after college, I had no idea I was going to write about video games. So but I knew I wanted to do like freelance writing of some sort. So I started getting all these different freelance gigs, including some that were in local journalism for the town in uh, Westchester, New York, where I lived. And I wound up covering like random things like a government board meeting. And so I wound up going to like all these different board meetings. And I'm sitting, I remember this, I have this vivid memory of sitting in this room where a bunch of old men are like sitting at a table on a podium with microphones and they're arguing about whether a fence should be 20 feet or 30 feet. And at that point I was just like, I need to be doing something more interesting. I'm going to kill myself if I have to keep doing this. So I was like, what about video games? I've always loved video games. Why don't I try that? And then kind of stumbled into, never thought I would stick with writing about this industry, but but somehow, somehow stumbled into it. It's interesting that you said you wanted to attack this, and I wanted to talk about this later, but I guess we'll address it now because you brought it up in that answer. It's interesting you said you wanted to attack this from a journalism perspective. I think the pipeline for current games journalists, esports journalists as well, is to be enthusiast-pressed, right? They are players. That was my original background, too. I, I didn't go to J school. 
like came uh, came up as a League of Legends and Call of Duty and Smash player and then wanted to just start writing about this. However, kind of building that separation is really tough for a lot of games journalists. I think they're really hard at sort of stepping away and kind of applying the critical eye of a journalist. Uh, some would say even pessimistic eye for uh, in journalism that most people carry. But I, I want to ask you, like, was that something you struggled with early on, separating yourself from the game? And, and uh, the second part of that would be, what would be your feedback for the people who are dealing with that very specific issue? Well, so, okay, I was very lucky in that I started my career having amazing mentors. And my, one of my first mentors was a guy named Chris Kohler, who ran Wired's video game section for a very long time. And he was one of the first editors that I worked with regularly. And he, one of the reasons he hired me is because I told him like, hey, I'm willing to pick up the phone. Like I see myself as a journalist first and like a video game fan second. I'm willing to make calls and piss people off. And I think that's what he was looking for. And he taught me a whole lot about journalism and reporting and the games industry and all sorts of cool things. And I think having really good, and then I would go on to have another one of the greatest mentors in Steven Totilla, who's another phenomenal editor and reporter and writer. And so I think, I think having really good mentors is really, and you have to be, yeah, there's an element of luck there, but if you're lucky enough to have really good mentors, I think that that will serve you well, because like as, as much as we all want to believe our egos want to believe that it's all us, it is absolutely, it's never all us. It's always like, like we're always the products of what we're learning and absorbing from the people around us. So that I think is one big aspect of this. Another thing is, I mean, I from what I've seen in watching colleagues over the years is that a lot of people aren't really that interested in kind of confronting the the disparity between like the gamer and them and the journalist in them because a lot of people are frankly more interested in eventually getting jobs at game companies and they're kind of working in press because it's fun it's fun to review games it's fun to write about games you uh, maybe a lot of them aren't don't want to burn too many bridges and they just wind up taking jobs at game companies which is I mean totally fine like if that's what you want your career path to be some people also I should say are forced into it because games media does not pay very well and if you want to actually make a career and have a family and make a, a, a decent enough wage that you can maybe buy a house one day, you might have to go into the games industry um, where you can actually make a living. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I think that like if you're, if you're struggling with, well, so are you talking about specifically struggling with like getting too attached to the beat that you're covering? Or what is the problem that you're interested in kind of confronting here? Yeah, specifically that being able to separate yourself for the love for what you're covering, especially because it is an activity you participate in. It's not like certain other beats where you are separated. I mean, if you're covering venture capital or business, you're not participating in that while you're a journalist. This you can you can play the games that you are covering. You can be involved, but being able to separate that and still apply that like journalistic critical eye. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting challenge. And it's especially interesting when you know how the sausage is made and you kind of learn more and more about the human the labor cost that actually goes into making these games that you're enjoying i think it's it's absolutely very possible to love the product and cover the industry with a skeptical rigorous eye not a rigorous eye a skeptical eye and a rigorous journalistic backbone i think that in fact i think it's kind of necessary because games is such a it's such an insular beat it's such a like specific beat that if you don't know the games if you don't love the games if you aren't like 
keeping your finger on the pulse of all things EA and Activision and Take-Two and Ubisoft all the time, it's hard to like be really good at it just because like it's it's one of those industries, I don't know, like sports where you really have to immerse yourself in it. That said, I think that I've never really had a challenge. Uh, I've never really found it too difficult to like write skeptically and critically about the um, companies that I'm covering or the products I'm covering because I think part of love is doing that. Like you can love video games and also want to see them get better and also want to see conditions around them get better. In fact, I think that's a necessary part of of like loving them is is wanting the best for them. And it's interesting. I, I always see on the on the critic side of things as opposed to the journalistic side of things and the critical side of things, reviewing side of things. Uh, you always see gamers being like, "Why do you hate? Why are you writing all this negative stuff about games? Why do you hate video games?" And it's kind of like, "No, man! Like if you're criticizing games, it's because it comes out of love for them and wanting to like write incisive stuff about them and and help help readers." understand them or, or think about them in a new way. And that's what's so interesting about criticism. You don't do criticism because you hate something. Like if you hated games, you'd be like working in, in finance. You'd be, <laughs> you'd be doing something that yeah. pays better than this. That's for sure. <laughs> so I have both of your books on the shelf behind me and have, and have nice. read, read them. Something you've covered in a lot of depth is crunch and in, in your work and in your books and everything else. Does that, does the coverage that you've done, has it made you have a, even if not intended adversarial relationship with a lot of the companies that you you write about just by reporting on that stuff? Yeah, um, although not necessarily just because of crunch. I think a, a lot of them, a lot of times it's because of because you're reporting on inside info about them or, or unreleased, talking about unreleased products or talking about products before they're announced and all sorts of stuff leads to adversarial relationships. But yeah, the labor conditions, definitely. Crunch is always an interesting subject because I think it, it gets kind of, it's become this boogeyman. And I actually think that it's a way more nuanced and complicated topic than, than people let on. Um, it's also gotten much better. I've been talking to a lot of people recently about crunch in the in the 90s and early 2000s for some other projects I'm working on. And uh, hearing those stories really puts in perspective what it's like today. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that like, the, I won't get into like all of the nitty gritty about what crunch is, but in case people are listening or aren't familiar, it's essentially excessive overtime, often for weeks or months on end. And there are very, many different kinds of crunches. There's some crunches that are healthier than others. There are some crunches that I think are, are easier on people than others and it can be done uh, well but in general it's not something that people want to do nobody wants to be in the office nobody want, wants to be working overtime for for excessive periods of time um, and this important distinction here this is not like a week of overtime to finish a game this is like this is months on it months um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important. I'm really glad to be a small part of the conversation when it comes to like bringing it up more and seeing it talked about more and more and more on Twitter. When I see a company say that they've just delayed their most recent game, I see a bunch of responses being like, "Yeah, take your time, like work and work work healthy hours. Don't crunch to finish this thing." Yada yada yada. And that's been really cool to see. It's it's one of the things that I think is important is that there's been a lot more awareness of it. In recent years and yeah i mean if that pisses off the companies involved so be it i think it's a necessary part of the job and i think it's something that maybe not a lot of people want to do because it doesn't feel good to have people pissed off of you or hating you but if you're a journalist um you probably have to make a few enemies if you're doing your job right key is to make sure that you're making the correct enemies but yeah i mean if you're if you're a journalist for any significant period of time and you haven't made any enemies then i don't know maybe maybe you're not 
doing maybe you maybe you could be doing more i don't know maybe you could be doing more combative or adversarial journalism maybe not maybe it's not for everybody but that's it's it's certainly something that i've experienced personally I doubt you experience this particularly this particular thing I'm about to describe as much anymore considering the publication you work for, the power that it holds in the world, and the fact that any coverage is good coverage when it's in Bloomberg. However, you know, I have had those adversarial moments with publishers in the past. I've had my credential lifted and revoked by both Riot Games and Activision Blizzard before to their events, and I've been pretty public at least now all these years I was told to shut up about it at the time by my employer. But even when I was at ESPN, it certainly put strain when those moments happened on my colleagues who covered it with with that less sort of critical eye they were you know whether it be they were just doing games beat writing or like event beat writing in the case of esports did you encounter that much at all at Kotaku where the stories that you were breaking were impacting the way that your colleagues had to have access Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was pretty much single-handedly responsible for Bethesda blacklisting Kotaku. And to this day, both Kotaku and I am blacklisted by Bethesda. Bethesda still won't talk to me, even at Bloomberg. It's it's because of their one head of PR, Pete Hines, who's, uh, who, who has a, a vendetta against me. Yeah, no, it definitely impacts. It definitely makes things tougher. It definitely leads to difficult situations. But like, I don't think that any of my colleagues, I mean, uh, I don't know, uh, people out there can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any of my former colleagues at Kotaku had a problem with that. Like, I think we all were proud to be at a website that was willing to to burn bridges with game companies and was fiercely independent. I mean, that's one of the things that was really great. And for all of, all of the flack that Gawker Media, our former parent company, got over the years, some of it deserved, some of it not so much, they allowed us to be completely independent and autonomous and if there was any pressure from our corporate side or ad side or anyone else, I never heard about it. I never once in my entire eight plus year career at Kotaku, I was never once told to not run a story because it might piss people off. So yeah, that that I think is something to be proud of and as a journalist. And it's something that I think if you if you worked at Kotaku, I think you had a little bit of and still have um, to this day because there's still a lot of talented people at Kotaku. You still have this kind of pirate pirate spirit the spirit of like being this this mm-hmm. fiercely independent organization that is not afraid to burn whatever bridges at bloomberg it's a little bit different because we have so many different reporters our newsroom is like thousands of people that like if a company like bethesda doesn't want to deal with me they might go to another reporter and then sometimes because my colleagues are awesome here and they're also just incredible journalists sometimes those reporters might be like okay we'll do this interview but only if you talk to jason which will put those companies in in uh, pretty funny situations yeah, that's it's it's a little bit different at Bloomberg. But to answer your question, Bethesda still blacklists me. Other companies that have pretty hot and cold relationships with me, various companies. And sometimes I don't even know why. I'll like send a bunch of emails to a PR person at a company and not get responses and be like, what did I do this time? Like, did I tweet something mm-hmm. you didn't like or what's the deal here? But yeah, it's part of the job. It can be irritating. I often wish that I had the chance to sit down with some of the talented game developers at a company like Bethesda. But it is what it is. So you mentioned sort of the pirate mentality of the ex Gawker media websites. They are highly criticized for behavior quite frequently. And sometimes I would say they step a line that is not particularly appropriate. I've been the subject of a, a Gawker media or ex Gawker media website story uh, in which 
my age was purposely left out of an article written about some very offensive things I had said as a young teenager. And I don't hold those that against those people and actually have a good working relationship with the journalist that wrote that story all these years later. However, uh, I certainly think that those websites, Kotaku, Deadspin, et cetera, carry a certain reputation that is not sort of highbrow investigative journalism sometimes because they do things like that more more broadly. They cover things or they write things that can be sort of, I don't even know how to describe it, but certainly what feels feels like a little bit less serious and even not just less serious, but maybe a little unfair. Did, did that ever impact your work? Slash, did you feel that or having worked at some of those websites when you're kind of out here trying to do high level business reporting in the way that you do? Um, no. And in fact, I was proud to work for a website where like I could run. I think my last two posts at Kotaku were one, a follow up on Rockstar Games, which and talking about its working like a long piece about its working conditions that ran at like 1500 words and two, like a 50 word nonsense post about the writer for Outer Worlds going to work for or the writer for Outer Wilds going to work for Outer Wor- Worlds and how funny I thought that was. I was thrilled to work for a website that gave us the freedom to cover gaming, which is inherently a silly industry, both with the seriousness and the silliness that it deserves. Because I think that like, I take my work very seriously, but I also think there's a lot of room for for doing things that are funny and off the beaten path and weird and certainly made my share of ups. I don't actually remember the story that you're referring to. I'm not sure if it was Kadaka or somewhere else, but I don't think I had anything to do with that one. So I don't remember it. But I certainly, I and I don't want to, I'm not going to speak for other people's stories, but speaking for my own stories, I've certainly made my share of ups over the years. And I think part of that, pirate ship mentality part of having that freedom it, it, it gives you the freedom to screw up as well and i think that can be both a good and a bad thing but there were many things i was proud of including the fact that when we did screw up we owned it we ate we didn't just like pretend that we didn't actually say that amazon is buying ea we actually we said hey this is what we did wrong here's a correction we apologize for the error and that is something that i am very proud of is that when we screwed up, we took responsibility for it. And sometimes people weren't happy with everything we did. Sometimes I certainly wasn't happy with everything Kotaku published. And we had plenty of internal battles and fights and squabbles over over all sorts of things, um, as is as is healthy for a news organization. Sometimes maybe it wasn't so healthy, but but I think it's pretty healthy to have a, a little bit of conflict in the newsroom. And yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I think that that ethos that we had um, when I worked there can't speak to things now, but but when I worked there, the ethos that we had, I was very happy with and very proud of. And was I think Stephen Chatilla, who ran the place, was very good at at creating an editorial, a set of editorial guidelines that we were all proud of. The one thing that I think is is uh, one, for example, one tenet that we always stood by is like anytime you write about someone in a journalistic way, you call them, you email them, you you reach out for contact. Um, yep. And if we ever didn't do that, that was a big screw up and we shouldn't have done that. But like uh, that was a rule. Like if we didn't do that, I mean, it was a screw up and an error and someone made a mistake, but we should have done it. And we would always acknowledge like, hey, we should have done that. But that's the type of example of like, think a journalistic principle that we stood by. And I think, yeah, I mean, we had we had plenty of principles like that. Yeah, Kotaku definitely breeded is it's even today, I would say a talent farm. There are some people there that I certainly see that are kind of on their come up and rise that could be in positions like yours or mine here in the next couple of years in terms of being able to either go independent or work for a major publication that's kind of outside the gaming space and but still covering their beat. 
certainly I think it has already done that with Stephen and yourself and Cecilia and others as well. Yeah, so. and I just want to say, I mean, I don't think to answer your question, which I didn't really answer about the, the the whether the lowbrow nature of some of the stuff on the site impacted me. Absolutely not. Like nobody, when people are reading a big investigative piece on Kotaku, nobody is like, oh, well, this also came from the site that like ran some stuff about anime, so it must be nonsense. No, they take it seriously because we worked and put many years in and put a lot of time into making sure that when we reported this stuff, it was accurate and true and, and rigorous and thorough and that it should be taken seriously. And as a result, when you saw a big Kotaka story, you knew it was not to be missed. And I'm certainly proud of that. And I don't I don't think that like if it had been in The New Yorker, like, like it's not like I, it it had the same. It had just as much of an impact as it would have if it would were published anywhere else. Is is the point? Um, and it led to. I mean, my Kotaku work led to me getting a book deal, and then multiple book deals, and all sorts of other cool stuff for my career. So no, I, I the low brown brown nature of some of our stuff on Kotaku did not negatively affect me in any way. Understood. So you mentioned EA and. EA and Amazon and the story <laughs> that ran last week from uh, For the Win, the Newswire that has publishing rights on USA Today's, uh, or sorry, GLHF, which is a newswire that has publishing rights on USA Today's For the Win. I wanted to talk about this before we that story even came out, given that we had booked this episode, but certainly want to talk about sort of the broader conversation and two parts of this, that one included, about the threshold of of breaking a story because clearly it seems like with that specific one that was not met i again we're both sort of speculating from the inside out but it i mean the retraction was pretty damning uh, to say the least so what to you when you're covering something like that whether it be an acquisition or whether it be something around a country or, or companies labor issues etc what is the threshold you have to meet whether it be number of sources, the amount of information you're being given, documents, et cetera. So, okay. So when it comes to a story that will move a company's stock, like <laughs> double digit percentages, better be friggin' right if we're going to publish something like that, or if I'm going to publish, if I'm going to put my name on something like that, better be right. So I will probably err on the side of sitting on it unless I am 110% sure, like, unless it is bulletproof, like I'm hearing it from the CEO. And even if I'm hearing it from the CEO, I'll probably want to corroborate it with someone else. Yeah, it's a tough one. I think that that in general, my general rule of thumb is that I'm not going to publish anything unless I've heard it from two sources, ideally both firsthand. Sometimes if like one is firsthand and the secondhand person is like, yeah, I heard it from this other person and tells me exactly who they heard it from or like gives me some, gives me full context on how they know it, then I'll feel comfortable running it. But ideally the threshold is two firsthand. In a perfect world, you would have at least three firsthand for any sort of story. And these are when I, I'm talking about like, that's just the baselines. I wouldn't run anything, even if it's like the most like anodyne rumor I wouldn't run anything without that baseline, at least. And I don't think my editors would either. I've never actually talked to my editors about like, what's our standard here? Because I always come prepared with like at least two sources yeah. on every story we do. Occasionally, occasionally I'll be like a one source story, but usually that's because it's like, 
adding it's like building on a story we've already done so like maybe we have a story on so for example i did a story recently on star wars the knights of the old republic and how that studio behind it was running into issues and eventually it was put on hold at that studio and moved to another studio my original story was based on three sources and then a source gave me additional info and i felt comfortable enough with the veracity of that source that i was able to like i added those details without necessarily second sourcing them because they were a few granular details added to this story that I already know is true from other sources. So if you want to get into the nitty gritty, sometimes you can play around with that. But baseline, two people at the very least. Documentation is great, but like documentation in in my world at least is so rare that that it's usually usually what I'm hearing is from is on my phone is like people calling me or texting me or signaling me. So usually I'm just talking to a few different people usually people aren't just like throwing documentation at me although obviously that stuff is great too and uh always a gold mine when someone is like here's a contract for uh the offer that we just got to be bought and mm-hmm. i'm like fantastic this is i think that happened to me with a with a game studio like four or five years ago that someone actually leaked the contract which was nice yeah man amazon buying ea i i don't really want to sit on the reporter involved too much because uh he seems like a decent guy i certainly think that like when you make a screw up like that you really need to be accountable for it and like explain what happened and and hold hold yourself to a standard where you will come out and like like actually apologize and say how it happened and explain why it wouldn't happen again but to each their own for a story like that yeah i mean i i think that the the standard certainly at bloomberg would be extremely extremely high before running anything like that well especially since you all have such an impact on wall street and the stock market as a publication well this this did too ea stock man i remember that seeing it that morning six hours yeah it well no before well before it was up by the end of the day, it was up six dollars. Before it was like before the CNBC came out and denied it, it was up like fifteen percent in the morning. It like really skyrocketed and then tanked. It was like, man, if you if you bought and sold EA at the right time on Friday of last week, then you were you were in for a treat. Another story I wanted to talk about this exact same thing on the vetting because you got a lot of shit around this specific story. I think a lot of us did, but you sort of top among uh, the rest of the journalists in the games industry, which is the Activision Blizzard sexual harassment story prior to the DFEH filing. When that filing came out, I saw a lot of people come after you and accuse you of holding a story and knowing about all of this for a long time. I've seen your responses about that, talking about sort of what you had heard versus what you hadn't, what was reportable, what wasn't. As someone who's published stories about sexual misconduct and also worked alongside the reporter that published the sexual misconduct story around riot games being cecilia and the great work that she did around that walk me through that that and you know sort of what you had heard and also why nothing ever saw the light of day yeah so it's so funny it's really incredible that that has become a narrative i think it's mostly gamer gators because it really started on R slash Kotaku in action and in those kind of cesspool social media sites. And then some of it has trickled out a little bit out of the Gamergate spheres, but it's mostly Gamergaters that have been saying that. And it's all based on a tweet that I sent after it broke, where I said essentially, truth is, like this is me paraphrasing, but I said essentially, truth is, I've heard some stories about 
like issues like this at Blizzard over the years. And we'll be reporting on this lots more. So contact me if you have a story to share or you want to share something about your experiences there. That was it. And that somehow turned into Jason Dreyer sat on this for three years because, again, gamer gators. I mean, they're like cretinous and don't have no idea what journalism is or what they're talking about. The truth is every reporter and every person in the video game industry hears rumblings about all sorts of things all the time. And that doesn't mean that there's a story to them. And it doesn't even mean that there's anything you can do with it because oftentimes it'll be like secondhand or third hand or someone telling you a story that maybe isn't theirs to share. In this case, I had heard from a couple of women over the years and had kind of in the back of my head somewhere um, and was actually, I, I had actually heard that there was some sort of litigation going on, which actually prevented a lot of the women involved from speaking to me in the first place, which put a block on that, on that sort of reporting. But uh, it was certainly on the back burner to be like, hmm, need to look into this stuff, hmm, need to ask around somewhere, need to figure it out. Um, and then the lawsuit came out, which oftentimes you need something like that as kind of the tipping point for a lot of other people to feel comfortable sharing their stories. And that ultimately led to a lot of great reporting. And we did a big piece on Bloomberg about uh, the kind of the, the culture at Blizzard that created uh, a lot of these issues that have been discussed in recent months. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding about what journalism is to think that someone should just be like out there like on a podcast every day sharing every single piece of rumbling info that they've heard, especially when it comes to something as serious as sexual assault. It's one thing and, and sexual misconduct. It's one thing to to be out there like some people are, and just sharing all the gaming rumors you've heard. Like, hey, I hear that Silent Hill is going to be announced next week. I hear that there's a Nintendo Direct. Like, that's all, that's totally fine and innocuous. To be out there and be like sharing every single serious story you've heard, that's quite another thing. And I think mm -hmm. that the the irony of gamer gators thinking that they're all about ethics and journalism while also uh, uh, propagating this this <laughs> this idea that I sat on a story as opposed to I was uh, not reporting on something without having uh, rock solid evidence and enough stories to corroborate it. Uh, yeah, that's certainly ironic. Yeah, understood. So the next thing I want to ask about is the Microsoft. Activision Blizzard acquisition. It seems like it's getting closer almost daily to actually being for real, you know, to pin for summer 2023 and just cleared Saudi Arabian regulatory clearance, which I don't know how much that really means for in a, in a company that has a vested interest in pushing that one through. But certainly it looks like it's not going to have much opposition in America. There's been some timeline reporting around that that it doesn't seem like there's been anything filed, at least by the Federal Trade Commission. And then, it, you know, it's making its way through the European system. So I think we're, you know, probably less than 12 months from it being a done deal. Do you, is your expectation that will that it will close up? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been uh, after seeing all the headlines and stories about Lena Khan, the new commissioner of the FTC. I have thought that she would use something like this as an example, but maybe not. I don't know. I, I, I don't. I, it's not clear to me yet. I don't know. Maybe uh, you said that a deadline had passed or something like that. I haven't been looking at that super closely, so I, I'm not sure what the specifics are as far as when the FTC would need to make a move as opposed to or ask them for more information. And also, there could be a lot of this that stuff happening behind the scenes. Um, my kind of 
prediction was always that uh, the FTC would like force some sort of uh, guarantees out of Microsoft. Like, hey, we guarantee we will not make Call of Duty exclusive to Xbox Game Pass or something like that. Or like we will allow Call of Duty on other subscription services because that's a big part of their focus when they're looking at the uh, antitrust possibilities here is is a lot of their big focuses on streaming services as opposed to the consoles um because call of duty is is at least microsoft has signaled that it's not taking call of duty off of playstation platforms or pc or anything like that well i guess all of their games are on pc but yeah so playstation platforms yeah that said i don't know it's it's tough to make a prediction on that front but certainly uh uh, people at blizzard people at activision certainly expect that this time next year they will have new corporate overlords um for some people i imagine that's a reason that they're sticking around in the first place because i think a lot of people were unhappy with their current management and knowing that the c-suite at activision is going to leave when the deal goes through i think is a big incentive for for some folks over there to stay but yeah nobody really knows what's gonna happen and nobody knows what kind of redundancies microsoft is gonna find there activision blizzard has its own publishing department has its own marketing and comms and uh uh qa and all the other parts of the machine that keep publishing rolling and uh uh, microsoft has their own people for all that stuff so who knows what's going to happen there yeah a lot of a lot of uncertainty who knows what's going to happen to esports you and i were just talking about this before before we started recording like what's going to happen with overwatch league call of duty league does that really fit into microsoft's portfolio Lots of lots of lingering questions, but to answer your question, uh, it's hard to hard to say what's going to happen. But yeah, at this point, it certainly doesn't seem like there's been any big obstacles or blocks or anything like that. It's been smoother sailing, I would say, than I thought it would be as well. And the FTC has a, a now open antitrust case against Facebook that surrounds mm-hmm. VR, and so I have a feeling that that may be the the gaming one that they take the swing at. Right, they're trying to stop. Facebook and Meadow from acquiring Supernatural, arguing that they already have exercise games like Beat Saber, et cetera. So yeah, that's yeah, another I, I think that may be the big swing. That's <laughs> another another thing that kind of another head scratching moment with the whole Amazon EA thing was like in this climate where the FTC is going after Facebook for that thing, like is Amazon really going to make another bazillion dollar deal here? Like, is that, is that really something that's going to happen? Who knows? Maybe it'll get announced tomorrow and maybe Amazon will buy EA tomorrow, but uh, certainly led to a lot of questions last week. I I would be highly skeptical. I think it's way more likely (laughs) it would be a company less involved in gaming, a la Disney, et cetera. If I had to speculate a little bit. So well, something I want to touch back on the Microsoft front, and I want to hear your thoughts from how the PR campaign has been handled and everything else. One thing that has been really clear to me over the past two, two and a half years, especially around the release of the Series X and in, in 2020, is that Microsoft has very heavily rehabilitated its public image in a lot of different ways to gamers. It feels like, you know, the the previous Xbox One was a, a dud, I would say, among the audience, like very universally hated after having a, a very successful lifespan of the Xbox 360 and the original Xbox. The company obviously went through its own significant sort of PR disaster in terms of it having its own issues with sexual misconduct and, and labor issues as well. And now it feels like they are in many ways the darling of the industry. I think a lot of people uh, think very highly of Xbox. And I think part of that was to do with 
what I would call the Phil Spencer brutal honesty uh, tour that happened in 2020 and 2021 where he was talking and I saw Gene in the space earlier and we wish Gene well, but talking to like Gene Park and having a really honest conversation that got published in the Washington Post, speaking to Kara Swisher, obviously a very influential tech journalist in her own right, and doing sort of this PR campaign and, and just talking about the mistakes very openly, not trying to sort of you know deflect from them a lot. How do you think that Microsoft has been able to rehabilitate its image? And why do you think that is important heading into this acquisition where it's really important for people internally at Activision Blizzard to feel like their company overlords are maybe a little bit more sensible and welcoming than their current ones like Bobby Kotick? Yeah, it's interesting. It really is. So much of it is about putting a face on the whole organization. Phil Spencer is a really charismatic guy. He comes across as genuine. He's also the type of guy who you hear stories about privately about how he's a great leader and a good guy and like seems to be a genuine, genuine person. Um, I, as a journalist, am always by nature skeptical of powerful people, of people at the very tops of companies. But yeah, he's he's an easy guy to like. And it's easy to see why putting him being the face of this company, uh, especially in contrast to the previous head of Xbox, Don Matrick, who is like, as close to a car salesman as you could get like a walking <laughs> talking like um, you almost expect him to be in like a Saul Goodman suit up on stage uh, he it's the contrast is like is is really apples and oranges and and Phil getting himself out there over the past few years it started way before 2020 I would say um, it's really been since he took over uh, and and has just been making all these incremental moves. And then the other part of the equation is Xbox Game Pass, which is just such a good deal for gamers. And there are a lot of bigger questions about how it impacts the industry and the kind of the race to streaming and Spotify and all sorts of other bigger questions. But when it comes to game developers and people who make games, but from a gamer perspective, from a fan consumer perspective, that's an incredible deal. Like you're paying, what is it, 10 bucks a month, 15 bucks a month for access to just like so many cool games and day one Microsoft games. Like that's incredible. So that like combine you combine this like really likable head of the face of the the company with that and you get you got got a winning formula and then it seems like they've been making a lot of smart moves obviously they've been making a lot of big acquisitions again that's another thing where it's like for the industry and for for ultimately for all of us that might not necessarily be a good thing and consolidation is never really a great thing but if you're an xbox fan if you're like loyal to your xbox console suddenly you see this company that is like taking game development very seriously and building up its stable of of games um in a way that just a few years ago it was it didn't seem like xbox was that interested in doing i mean 2013 i don't know if you you were around for this if you were covering games at this point but there uh i remember their big xbox Xbox One announcement event and man, it could not have gone gone any worse. It was just like Don Matrick taking the stage, like Phil Harrison, like all these kind of out of touch executives talking about TV and how your TV watching experience is going to be enhanced by the Xbox One and they barely mentioned games and Connect was a big part of it and it was just a mess. It was just a disaster and yeah, under Phil Spencer, things have gotten much, much better and uh, yeah, it it also, as often happens, it also coincided with Sony making some boneheaded moves and PlayStation just like heading in the opposite direction. I mean, most recently they raised the cost of their console in, in every country except for the US, which 
is just, man, talk about a self-inflicted wound. Not to mention their seven, the $70 games and like all sorts of other mistakes they made. And it's kind of like the ebb and flow well, and, the, the, and the Jim Ryan, the wars. Jim Ryan email that you published a, a few months ago as well about that sort was of something, their, yeah. their stance on being separating politics from the workplace and in response to the leaked Roe v. Wade Dobbs decision. Yeah, and he how he wants to adopt a cat. Or was it a dog? I forget. It was a dog, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh I've never met Jim Ryan. I don't know him or anything about him, but don't I don't think he has quite the public perception that Phil Spencer does at this point. So before we get to some of the audience questions, I've always wanted to, to talk to you about this pri- privately but also publicly, and I'm really curious about this as well. <laughs> uh-uh. So you are like I started at the beginning of the episode, I think when we look at games journalism. You are the most successful games journalist in the industry. You are one of the lucky few of us, I would say, to, and this is making an assumption, but a fair one, I think, to be fairly well off in an industry that is very top heavy, where there's only a few of us that earn a pretty solid wage and the rest that really struggle to put things together all the time. And, and I'm privileged in that way, too. And that's not to brag, but just to acknowledge that, you know, I've been sort of in a similar boat. But one thing that, it struck me is that, you know, you're doing these books, you have the level of access that you have and, and the, you know, credit and history that you have in your reporting and the good work. Why have you chose to remain at a publication in a time where journalists feel like they're uh, going independent and being incredibly successful at doing so? <laughs> because Bloomberg has lawyers and they're really good lawyers. No, yeah, I mean, well, it's... to to be fair, the like as someone who publishes on Substack, there is a Substack fund that covers a, a lot of litigation. If anybody ever came after me, I'd be okay. Yeah, it's... so I don't know if it's just lawyers. What, what's what's the answer here? No, it's it's an interesting question, and it's something. I mean, I, I won't lie and say that I haven't thought about all of my potential options. Um, but I like the. I mean, first of all, I have a family. I just had another baby three weeks ago, so I have two kids. Like having stabil- the stability of an organization around me, and health insurance, and vacation days, and like parental leave, which I'm about to take, and all of that good stuff that comes with the company. I like. I really like my newsroom and. My my editors and the people that I work with every day. And I think I would really miss that. Um, If I ever went solo, I think I would miss just being able to just being surrounded by like a ton of talented journalists. Just today, just a couple hours ago, we were doing a big Zoom call. The Bloomberg tech team was doing a big Zoom call to talk about um, my colleague, Mark Bergen, who just wrote a book about YouTube that is getting published next week and like talking about the book and how we went about it. And that to me is so cool. And just being surrounded, like being surrounded by so many talented people and getting to learn from them is really, really rewarding. And that's something that I really enjoy at Bloomberg. Um, Certainly something to be said about being able to pick up the phone and be like, hey, I'm from Bloomberg and people will know where you work as opposed to like, hey, I'm from jasontryer.substack.com. And yeah, I I think there are a lot of advantages. And like if I if I ever I mean, I'm at a point where I'm fortunate that Bloomberg treats me well and they give me a lot of freedom and autonomy and like they let me pursue the stories that I want to pursue. I haven't really been told no a lot, fortunately, when I've been trying to pitch stuff and and talk to them about hey, I'm working on this scoop. Hey, I've got this feature that I want to do. They are very supportive. My editors are very good and very helpful and transform my work and make me better. And 
I, I still feel like I have a lot to learn from people and I just don't want to be in a position, at least right now, I don't want to be in a position where I'm just solo and having to worry about like, okay, am I going to find a freelance editor? Am I going to find a fact checker? Am I going to have to worry about uh, uh, dealing with like, like the Substack hit the subscription hit if I decide to take four weeks off to go hang out with my newborn son like I don't want to think about all that stuff so yeah there are a lot of compelling reasons to keep me in the kind of the traditional world of journalism and yeah as of right now I'm pretty happy like I I, I don't think and I, I don't I also don't think that like making the change like going if I were to start a Substack tomorrow I don't really think it would be good for me for a couple reasons I mean first of all I don't really think that it would be I don't think I would start making like millions of dollars or anything nor do I really want to but also I don't think it would be good for my work to be forced to write on a certain cadence for people mm. um, I really like having the freedom to not have to do that and to be able to be like okay look this I'm going to spend a week on the story and maybe it'll work out and maybe it won't. And maybe I'll have just put a bunch of time into something and my editors are going to be cool with that because they trust me and they know that I'm still going to output work even if this this one doesn't happen to work out. Yeah, a lot of, lot of compelling reasons for me to stick around. And I like my job. I'm pretty happy there. Yeah, I, I totally respect that answer. Obviously, I've made different decisions in my career. Uh, than you in this point, but nonetheless, like different yeah, nothing against so the I, the independent route, especially for someone like you, who I mean, ESPN had has, uh, as I'm sure you can attest, it has its own pros and cons for sure. And absolutely. I think that one one important thing I should say is that Bloomberg. A lot of times when mainstream media organizations have tried to get into games, they've done a half-assed way of it, of doing it. They haven't put in the resources. They like bury the game section somewhere and then complain when it doesn't get any traffic or like barely give any promotion to stuff. I have found the complete opposite at Bloomberg. Like they are all about, they are all in about the games industry. They are like interested in, in the publicly traded companies, especially, and, but they're interested in yep. the work that I'm doing. They're very happy with it. I got a nice shout out a couple of weeks ago when I did a big story on Rockstar. Um, got a nice shout out by like the, the organization at large. And also we just hired Cecilia, my former colleague, to cover games also so like Bloomberg is very interested in covering the video game industry and giving it the the resources it deserves and that alone is like a really compelling reason to be part of part of uh, a big mainstream organization is that they're actually taking it seriously they're not just like hey this video game industry thing let's throw a couple of freelance dollars at it every so often you have to know what you are and know what you're not. And I would say uh, I've spoken about this at length over the past couple of years, but ESPN had a real problem in, at figuring that out. And I feel like a lot of media companies in the game space didn't know, don't understand the, the level of depth you have to have either. I think one thing that you all do quite well at Bloomberg now, and, and even when Cecilia was at Wired and, you know, their games department is much smaller than, than Kotaku, which is a full on, you know, game trade publication itself. Y'all are very good at, at where is it important for the two of you to spend time and sort of the big beat stories that are worth your time, not trying to write everything and anything about gaming, which that, that actually is corollary to the independent life, like figure out where, where you're mattered most. Yeah, agreed. And that's what brings in the traffic. And that's what resonates with people is doing stories that you think matter most to people. And 
I mean, sometimes it doesn't, but yeah, it's, it's an effective approach is to do what Bloomberg is allowing us to do, which is like, we have our baseline stuff. Like we have to do our earnings reports every three months. Cause that's what our, our audience expects. Yep. But other than that, we're pretty much free to do what we want. And Cecilia is pursuing her beats, which she's really fascinated by. And I'm pursuing my beats that I'm fascinated by. And it, it's worked, it's worked out nicely so far, I think. Well, that makes me happy that you guys are given the freedom. So we are going to start taking audience questions. We have one for with someone that said that they couldn't make it. So I'll read that one and then we'll start promoting up folks who have asked them and can ask them over voice. So I'll read this first one. This is from Ian Gertler. I hope I pronounced that right. Jason, do you see emerging tech areas like blockchain, Web3, and especially metaverse as more reinforcing or challenging for gaming? <laughs> Neither. I, I see them as kind of irrelevant to gaming, unfortunately. And I've had a lot of conversations with people who are working in Web3 three, Web three gaming space and they're nice people. And I feel for them because I just think that this is this is a giant, giant bubble. It's already really bursting, but it's going to get worse before it gets better because there's just zero. It's It's like the way I always describe it is like there's a solution that doesn't actually have a problem. It's a solution to a problem that doesn't actually exist. The idea of like Web3 gaming and blockchain and play to earn all that stuff. And um, there's no appetite for it among people who actually play games. And so inherently, it's all going to fail. Like there's a lot of money that's poured into this stuff and a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. Unfortunately, a lot of companies are going to shut down, but it's all just VC puffery right now. And it's been several years and nobody has come up with a single game that makes play to earn fun or interesting or appealing to people. And the big test case that everyone pointed to, Axie Infinity, which caught all these puff pieces last year about how it was really changing the world and people were finally playing games and making money off of it. That bubble just burst pretty hard and then people started to realize, oh, wait a minute, this isn't actually a fun game and the people who are playing it are essentially serfs who are working for like rich people and making them more money and... God, what a disaster. It's all a disaster. And I would encourage people who are working in the Web3 and metaverse spaces to um, to f have escape routes planned, have have a have a, a plan B. You don't think Mark Zuckerberg will be our um, major overlord here in the next couple of years? Yeah, after him? seeing that look at uh, when he was his France and Horizon Spain or Worlds, whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really good stuff. Yeah, I, I recently picked up a Quest 2 like two weekends ago, and I, I will say it's incredibly fun. I have zero appetite to make my entire life be inside of that headset. It's, yeah, this idea of like turning this <laughs> this niche hobby of VR, which is a really cool niche hobby, the idea that that would be the future is just like, man, it's all it's all a disaster. It's such a mess. I can't wait till till we're past this particular fad. I, v, VR, VR chat and VR sex games have a, a lot of high downloads, which is highly disturbing to me on the letter. So. <laughs> that does not shock me at all. Yeah. Anywho. All right. So we're going to call up a question from uh, Too Much Manga. Question was, how will people start viewing the term games journalist, end quotes, as someone who is not just a, quote, games critic, quote? I feel as though the job title is still viewed as an extension of critic. I feel as if many investigative reporters are still viewed as the same people who also review games. Um, I, I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> I, I mean, it doesn't, I don't really give much thought to how this 
like terminology of games journalists or critics or whatever are used. I just try to do the work and see a lot of other good people doing good work and who cares what they're called. Uh, I, I prefer the term like games media or games press anyway, rather than games journalists, which has kind of like a weird, weird undertones these days. But to get, I mean, to get at the meat of this, I think that there's an interesting conversation to be had about like critics versus journalists and whether when that line is blurred and whether journalists should be reviewing games, which I certainly do and enjoy doing and uh, how journalists can talk about products and what that looks like. And I think those are interesting conversations to be had. Um, but uh but uh yeah i mean there's plenty of good criticism out there and there's plenty of good reporting out there and it's only gotten better and better this field since i started in it i've i've seen a drastic improvement and i've seen a big like uh, i've seen way less of the kind of like marketing friendly puffery exclusive uh cover reveals and previews and all that other nonsense and i've seen a lot more real reporting and uh, uh, adversarial reporting and challenging work. And that's really cool to see. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good answer. I do think the terminology is important because it separates just like in any publication, it separates who, whose opinion and who's not. I think that that sort of, you know, declination and, and uh, labeling is really important to, to journalism as at large. It is, but the lines are so blurred. I mean, it's like, and and you could get into a bigger conversation about objectivity in journalism and how like if you look at someone's uh, and nobody is actually objective because if you look at someone's story selection and how they write certain things, you can tell a lot about them no matter what. I remember, I mean, at Gawker Media, uh, we were all like it was encouraged to put your opinion on your sleeve and just be honest about it. So like uh, mm. and certainly be fair and truthful and, and accurate and thorough in your reporting, but like be honest about your perspective on things rather than trying to obfuscate. And certainly, I mean, like when I read a New York, New York Times, which I would say is the gold standard for reporting and is a paper that I, I'm a proud subscriber of and, and love reading, there are certain reporters there who I can read a story by them and certainly tell that they lean conservative versus other who uh, I can certainly read and tell that they lean liberal and trying to hide that I think is is pointless is is not really effective yeah it's it's a fine line to toe and I think especially in games it's a little bit more difficult because we are asked to do so many different things like we were just talking about mm -hmm. right we're asked to cover such a wide sort of uh, breadth it's not so easy when there's such little budget to go around especially when you're a vertical on another website to yeah. both hire a independent reviewer and also a you know investigative reporter yeah so. i mean the, the i guess a challenge that might happen and i've never even seen this in a practical sense but like one challenge that might happen is if you're reviewing a game negatively and then you then have to like cover that studio in some rigorous way in some reporting way or vice versa you review a game positively and then have to cover that studio like in a in a negative way but i don't know that's not not really a practical problem that a lot of people have dealt with yeah we have another question and my team said that they have not responded with the ability to request speaker so i'm just going to read this one too which is from curvell uh, in the space, which is, uh, they say, good night, Jason. Do you think it's possible that streaming services will make consoles obsolete in the next decade or will consoles be a second option? And before you answer that one, I just want to say I wrote a column about this yesterday and sort of why uh, game streaming has been highly unsuccessful because of infrastructure issues in America. But yes, Jason, your take. Why is, is game streaming going to uh, usurp consoles and make consoles irrelevant? Or are we still going to see massive console releases as we have over the past 
yeah. It's an interesting decades. question. I mean, I don't think we've seen Stadia come and go. We've seen Xbox experiment with it, Sony experiment with it, and to, to various degrees of success. Yes, you're spot on about the internet infrastructure being the biggest barrier to streaming, being like a, a popular widespread thing. Um, so yeah, I, I don't see consoles going to replace anytime soon. That said, I do think that we're heading towards a future that is more about um, ecosystems than it is about platforms. And we've seen that Microsoft already puts all their games on PC. Sony will soon be putting many of their games on PC, has already put many of their games on PC. Wouldn't be shocked if in the next five, 10 years, there's a lot more of that crossover and it's a lot more about like we want you to buy into the xbox game pass ecosystem no matter where you're playing it we want you to buy into the playstation ecosystem no matter where you're playing it and consoles become less relevant maybe we see a future where it's more like a wide degree like a a variety of pcs or pc related like consoles that you can get but i can see that being more of a future where we're still playing on hardware like streaming hasn't replaced that but maybe it's less of like the traditional console model that we we know today too early at the at this point which is is the problem i was doing some math yesterday of how much it costs to have a 25 megabyte uh, per second download speed which is the stadia requirement yep. and for many others and in the context of facebook just shut down its facebook gaming app which a lot of that was also originally supposed to be quote-unquote cloud gaming and streaming playing on other devices from your phone yeah but, man i can barely you know, i i like can barely get wi-fi in my whole house like let alone like i'm prepared to stream yeah it's it's uh doesn't seem like it's deterring uh the developers from trying though i mean the fact that sony now has a partnership with backbone and is like trying to you know put out this kind of console controller i think neil Druckmann was tweeting the last of us remastered on our last of us part one on on him playing on the sony backbone like couple days ago so it doesn't seem like they're gonna stop trying well so streaming i mean streaming is one thing when you're like streaming from your console to your phone in in your own house that works extremely well these days actually my buddy kirk hamilton my podcast co-host at triple click he got a ps5 streaming or ps4 like playstation streaming working on his steam deck and so he's been like replaying all of persona 5 on his steam deck before it even comes to pc which is which is cool that stuff i think there's a lot of tech working tech for it's more streaming from someone else's servers like with stadia that is more of an issue i think for a lot of people well also still very difficult though to do that remotely if you're in your own house laying in your bed and you're playstations in the living room maybe that's easy well yeah that's what i'm i assume that's what across the yeah across the country though and trying to stream from your playstation you can do that but it's really tough i assume that the backbone stuff that's more like streaming on your phone with your playstation in the other room that's more what it's like geared towards i'm i I would be curious to ask uh, some of the playstation people that maybe that's a different topic for a different day so Lend on this one because apparently space is just being buggy with invites. Generally, this is from DG, and it is, what do you think about Sony's acquisition of Capcom and will Microsoft or will Sony hit back Microsoft's Bethesda acquisition? I guess mean, you know, catch up in market share is, is how I would translate the last part of that question. Wait, what? Sony's acquisition of Capcom? Did they acquire Capcom? No. That, are we being asked fake, fake news? Yes. Here? That's a fake question. Okay. <laughs> Bad news for you, buddy. <laughs> okay. Oh, good, the good question is, is it um, possible in the future? I don't know. <laughs> okay. I There was some sort of like news report from earlier in, there was some sort of news report earlier in the year that said that 
they might acquire Sega, Capcom, Square, and FromSoft. Sure, yeah, sure. And from. Amazon is buying EA. I don't know if you've heard. Yeah, yes. I guess the, the other part of that, do you, do you think other, you know, we've seen them acquire Bungie, but do you think there's something, there's more market share out there for Sony to nab that makes sense to catch up with Microsoft? Because it feels like Microsoft has far and away put themselves so much higher in sort of this modern day console war of land grabbing IP. <laughs> sure. I mean, Microsoft is like a trillion dollar company and Sony is like a, like several billion not like tens of billion dollar company so it's not really not really they're not playing on the same field that's for sure that's all for our show if you enjoyed this episode of visionaries please leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts or spotify special thanks to sammy day and prem thotamkara for their help on this episode and this week we're changing up our schedule a little bit on friday we will have an interview out with ludwig one of the top streamers in the world So we'll see you then.